0: I'm Dustin and I am technology curious. I like to play with the new phone and different operating systems and software and Docker and try all new tools and things to solve problems that I have in my life. And oftentimes I've caused more problems than I started with, but I like to play and I like to learn what's available and how to use it. But I don't really know how it works.
1: And I'm Vaughn. I'm an engineer. And realistically, the only thing I've been good at is electronics and computers. I started off when I was really young working with electronics, eventually went to school for electronics and computers, and lately I've been spending most of my free time building free software for other people to use. I really enjoy learning how things work and explaining to other people how they work. However, I do like my stuff to stay pretty consistent because I really don't like interruptions. This is the IO Bound Podcast, where our disks are busy and our CPUs are doing absolutely nothing. Last night, I actually had some fun trying to figure out how this whole Gigabyte thing worked, right? Like, I called you... I was more excited about the things I learned in the process of discovering this bug. Shouldn't call it a bug. Get to that. But I was just really excited to tell somebody about all of this fun, neat stuff that I sort of learned. And most of it was high-level, as far as, like, it's not stuff that I've really messed with in a while, right? Like, this... I'm not really I'm I'm as far as my like low-level stuff goes, I'm probably somewhere in like the 80s or 90s maybe. That's about sort of my extent, like 8-bit, 16-bit microcontrollers, like I mess with that kind of stuff, but modern, you know, systems are pretty crazy. And so most of this stuff is sort of high-level and I haven't really played with it in a while. Most of my software stuff now is uh, written in manage run times, or even if it's C, it's it's high level, that kind of stuff, right? So user mode programs. While digging into this, right, I, I called you kind of excited that I just kind of figured out UEFI, EFI, BIOS, the, all the things that you kind of know. More specifically, I suppose you could call it firmware, but it's now as far, as, I think UEFI would be the universal standard for the entire process of storing firmware, the entire API to work with processors. It's Sort of the standard between manufacturers and motherboard manufacturers, BIOS um, you know, I'm going to combine all of those to say that UEFI is sort of the, the the wrapper for all modern firmware standards in computer systems you know x86 modern computer systems
0: so as the noob who doesn't understand this my my takeaway was that essentially this is a firmware call that will 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 download a program on your operating system that will in, that will install firmware updates for the motherboard. My understanding basically was that the something to do with the firmware, or I guess it's the BIOS or whatever on the motherboard. Um, when you had an operating system installed, it would inject something in the startup process, which I guess she said was the e- UEFI, and that would make basically, unbeknownst to the user of the operating system of the computer, you would have a updater running in the background and it was lever, or was called by the firmware. Is that even close? Like, am I even on the right track here? I mean, cause this is a little over my head.
1: Right. So specifically we, we, I didn't intro this, but we're talking about the gigabyte motherboard issue starting. It would be second quarter, 2023, I believe. And mm-hmm. it's not something it, it's hard to describe exactly. Do I consider it a bug? Do I consider it malware? As of the time of this recording, this information only came to light from research. Part of the boot process before control is passed to the operating system, right? So, any of the bootstrapping of the operating system, uh, firmware has to initialize the processor, has to initialize all of the hardware, right? All of the, the, the root hub and uh, any of the other modules that exist. It has to be done via the processor, right? From its reset vector, right? It has to actually start running a program right, that is all essentially hard-coded in UEFI. In UEFI, once control is reached some sort of higher level, right, I forget the exact phase that it would be, there is a partition that uh, you can think of it sort of like a a, a file system, right, it actually is, it's called firmware uh, volume, and it's a special file system that is readable, Uh, during the startup process, the UEFI startup process. And it has a flat file system, so it can store these itty-bitty files that are read-only, essentially, in uh, firmware, and that's a running program. So when initialization happens, that firmware volume was read, and that file, specifically, that we're worried about, was actually a compiled Windows binary. Right? So it meant it was, it was actual it was a user mode program that was runnable directly by uh, the bootstrapping of the operating system. Part of the driver load process, right this is the crazy stuff, right? So part of the driver load process will actually copy, right? because you can't actually do anything with uh, that firmware volume, right You can't actually execute a program from a firmware volume, right The operating system can't address it. Um, Even in in the real mode that the operating system works in, it's not addressable to my understanding. So it has to actually copy that during initialization, UEFI initialization, and bring it into main memory somewhere that the OS itself during bootstrapping can manage. So during the boot process, the Windows Session Manager subsystem specifically is a component of the operating system during its bootstrapping that will read the firmware volume programs that were loaded into memory by the the driver environment, and it will copy them into operating system accessible memory. So the Windows Session Manager subsystem will actually load that program and execute it.
0: So what would the intent have been for that to be like, wouldn't it have been difficult for the BIOS manufacturer, the firmware manufacturer, which I guess you're saying is the same kind of count that all is right, uh, the UEFI, but like, isn't that extremely complicated to implement something that Windows will pull in through the, like startup process? Like wouldn't it have been wouldn't that have been like an extremely complex thing to have achieved uh, to have also done it incredibly insecurely.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can get to that. But as far as uh, I mean, yes, this is an incredibly complicated system. However, it's common, from what I understand, to include these sort of, I mean, you need to include some basic drivers. And I'm drivers, in this case, I, I would assume are just the absolute basics for the, the hardware on the motherboard, right? The, the processor and the operating system don't really know how to communicate with the hardware on the motherboard. The, the firmware, the, the UEFI, is actually responsible for making or allowing the processor to interact with this I.O., right, In this different hardware. So I would assume it's pretty common. So, I mean, there's a reason the firmware uh, volume exists, right? Presumably, it's to allow these sort of basic drivers and basic applications from the, f- the firmware manufacturer to be easily accessible by the operating system. So presumably, really low-level routines, uh, or these, these drivers that are specific to the hardware on the motherboard, I would expect to be something so special or, or so important that it needs to be included in the firmware to be in this segment and realistically nothing else. And as far as the Eclipsium research article was concerned, they did seem shocked that they, somebody would would contain a, a portable Windows executable format uh, included within this segment, right? So again, it, it presumably would be very important files uh, to get you started and uh, specific to the hardware on that motherboard. Um, and then user mode applications are you know, just unexpected, forbidden, etc point is the firmware volume extremely tiny volume included in the memory module flash memory uh, that contains your uefi takeaway being the files that would be stored here are meant to be accessible to the operating system right so anything that's stored here is specifically meant to be available by the os in the case of gigabyte here Uh, as far as the intentions or at least the researchers were concerned was that they likely put it there as a way to keep their system updated without having to deal with like maybe the support of it. So they wanted to just have it auto load and auto run and not have to think about it. And if you think about it that way, I mean, think about all the tools people use on a regular basis in modern computers that you just kind of expect to work. So I can think of a lot of reasons why they would want that there. And uh, in a world where Like I said, I think we expect things to kind of work when you plug them in. I can see a reason why that volume exists and why software like that would sit there. However, I'm still not comfortable in this specific situation. And the fact that you're generally powerless to the motherboard manufacturer installing a user mode application that runs elevated privileges, beyond elevated privileges, uh, on your your operating system, even if it didn't do what it did, right? Right. overwrite its own firmware that's obviously much worse right but at a minimum simply saying that you're powerless to your motherboard manufacturer installing a program into your your machine your operating system as a service with highest privileges starting it up and running it without any of my knowledge right the amount of things that could do that you the user are completely powerless to Did you have any
0: questions about any of that before i moved on uh no but i guess when we get to the program side here the thing that actually does the updating is the uh, application, the user, the user-level application that's installed by this UFI driver, right? Right. So the actual updates come via an application that gets installed, but the application gets installed without the user knowing. Like you're never prompted to install this application that will then go make the calls to, to download the.
1: Right, because it's so low in the stack, right? So they stuffed this this application that they knew the Windows Session Manager was going to load because that's its job, right? So there's multiple programs. Like I said, theoretically, I don't know this for sure, but I wouldn't assume this didn't exist for this reason, right? So there's probably multiple programs that get control via a process or a child process that the Windows Session Manager subsystem starts, right? So that is sort of the, the base process for all user mode programs, from what I understand. So... As that starts up it has access to these programs and it just has an execution list and anything that matches a program it will attempt to execute that as a child process because it assumes it's sort of like a startup program when that happens right it starts a program it actually unwraps another program that's stored within itself right so there's actually a full .NET program and it writes it to a file right and it puts it in system 32 and I think it's called, like, Gigabyte Update Service. And it puts it in the System32 folder. It then does the necessary steps to create a service, basically. So that can mostly be done through registry. And it starts it. Then the program exits, and it closes. So this program is a short-lived, it's ephemeral program. It starts up just enough to write this file to System32, create the service, start the service, and exit. I mean, it's kind of... Freaky that it does that. I don't know if there's any way of it knowing, presumably it doesn't, right? It's read-only, that it will do this every time your system starts up. So every time the Windows Session Manager, um, Windows Session subsystem starts up, it will create this file, start the process, create this file, attempt to start it and run it. The fun part happens in the updater tool, right? So it's a.NET application, it's now running. And presumably it, because of the privileges it was running at when it started, it's presumably creating a service with the system or the highest level privilege that a programmer process can run in. Now, they didn't discuss exactly how the firmware itself was written. To my knowledge, this program was just installing itself to then go get a copy of the updater tool. So this was just a service that went and got the tool. That's what people were worried about. It wasn't downloading a binary file. It wasn't downloading... um, it was downloaded like another Windows executable from what I understand. So I'd be happy to be wrong about that. But as far as the research that I sort of found here, um, which I believe was from Eclipsium is the place. So I, I got most of this research from the Eclipsium uh, research website. They were
0: the ones who originally discovered the issue too.
1: Okay, that's, that's the way I understood it. I didn't find any clear evidence and maybe I just missed it. Where they discussed where the, the firmware process happened. Meaning that where do you get the firmware file and then the process of flashing it, right? All they sort of discussed was the payload it was downloading, right? So it starts this process, the .NET program, it goes and gets this file, right? It goes and gets this updater tool and it installs it for you, right? So it creates the the required files and folders and and injects this uh, process. What they were concerned about was simply that without your control, a process was started up and it went connected to the internet through a .NET application, right? and it downloaded whatever it felt like right it was hard coded to specifically the set of urls which you can find in the notes of this video i'll make sure to include them and so they were mostly concerned for two two things that it was doing a dns lookup and it was doing it at a time where i mean if it was connecting to a dns server you had network activity you had network services so you could have a dns uh issue so you could uh, man in the middle of dns right so you could point it to your own server and you could have it download a malicious payload. Right. And so that program it was downloading, it was then running. So I mean it, it, it would have full system privileges, right? It's a user mode application that would have That's full not system e- privileges. Right. At full administrator privileges. And even the worst of it, from what I was reading, right, their argument was, well, they could overwrite firmware. I didn't exactly see how they were doing that but this tool was meant to overwrite firmware at least the one they were downloading from gigabyte so it's there so you can dns spoof it right man in the middle dns you can also man in the middle and http connection, right, a non-secure connection. It also I don't think was doing certificate checking. You're not always going to do a full SSL check, right? So do a certificate verification via the OS. If not, you're going to do an online certificate revocation check. You can do the basics and I want to say the SSL stream class and a couple others in .net that handle SSL will actually cause an exception in the default case. So if you don't set up any special request parameters and you use an HTTPS connection, I think it does the absolute bare minimum. So it will check that the certificate's not expired. It will check that the domain matches their certificate issuer domain. That's kind of about it. Uh, and I think that happens by default. So those are your two things, right? It downloads a program that can be intercepted man in the middle over SSL, man in the middle that because they're not checking good enough, or it can be done by DNS. And the second part being Once it's in, it starts up, it runs, right? With full system privileges. On top of that, it has the potential, that's what it was designed to do, was update the firmware of the system and it's supposed to wait until the system restarts. Presumably it sits in some writable location of memory or there's a subroutine that runs either in UEFI. um, So next startup, it will overwrite its current state, right? You've now taken control of the whole system. You've reflashed firmware to whatever it is, arbitrary file you wanted it to be.
0: So I've seen this happen, like, Um, One of the, one of the options from Eclipsium, Eclipsium. Thank you. Um, You know, they mentioned, you know, you should set a uh, turn in in BIOS, turn off uh, app downloader, which by the way, I have, I have three motherboards that are within their list that are active and running. And um, none of those have an option in BIOS for turning off the auto app installer, whatever they called it in the list here. Right. Um, but I have seen that on a lot of um, ASUS motherboards laptops and motherboards that have um, a toggle which I'm assuming has the same sort of function Mm -hmm. where if you leave it on on first boot in Windows it will make a call to download like the uh, you know their their motherboard management software Um, so this to me like unless I'm wrong this isn't this isn't an abnormal thing this is the type of thing that lots of manufacturers offer or do, and the biggest problem with it is, one, is bringing light to something that a lot of people hadn't really thought about, or, and two, that they were doing it um, potentially extremely insecurely and really easy to attack because there was no way it would be so easy to man in the middle, man in the middle the request for the firmware update that had the capability of overwriting firmware. Which basically could do anything to you at that point. Like, if you if you have control of firmware, then your operating system doesn't belong to you anymore.
1: And it's not particularly difficult, I think. I, I would argue one of the first things most, say, home labbers or, or your tech enthusiasts, if you're playing around with technology, you've probably messed around with DNS, right? And in that mm-hmm. case, it's not particularly difficult to change the address that if you, assuming you own the zone, right, you can... Create an A record, have it point to your own server. It's making a standard HTTPS connection. You could simply put any Windows executable on an HTTP server, right? And have it point Resolve to your HTTP server and it would download it and it would try to run it, right? It actually, would try, it would run it. Um, and it would be running it with, with system privileges. And that's something that's not particularly difficult in my opinion for anybody that's sort of messed around with DNS or HTTP servers. You can do this with Nginx. If this is Apache, you could do this with, you know anything that can host a web server, right? You can do it with my software. You mentioned you have a couple gigabyte motherboards. I just wanted to throw out there, Eclipsium has a link somewhere in this article, which I'll I'll either tag that or at least the minimum being the Eclipsium uh, research article. They have a whole list of motherboards that have been affected. It's a long list. It's a much larger list than I was expecting.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I actually didn't even realize it. I read, so I, I opened it, and I just happened to be in my browser just the right size. And I was like, oh, one page, there's like, what, probably 50 boards here. And I didn't realize it was five pages. So, yeah, it's a lot. Pro- probably nearly all of the modern motherboards would be my guess.
1: Yeah, they also have a PowerShell script you can run. And I don't think you need to be an administrator to, to run it. Um, I think you need to give the script privileges if you're going to use, uh, use the script from a download file instead of a local file.
0: Yeah, it looks like the PowerShell script, it just, it just checks the motherboard version. Um, Okay. So we have a hash list. We have a um, model list. Looks like it's being uh, created. Um, It offers a file path to the gigabyte updater as a check. And then if uh, the file exists on the path and matches the hash value, just lets you know that it's there. And It looks like this is all this is doing. I'm not really sure what the point of the script is because all it does is tell you it's affected or it's not affected.
1: Well, to my knowledge, there's nothing they really can do right so this yeah. is in your firmware unless you overwrite firmware with a known firmware that will remove this this executable from it or uh, and, and still give you a running system afterwards right so you you hopefully will need it from the official manufacturing and i believe they mentioned in there uh, i should say I believe i actually went to it gigabyte has a release uh, patch notes on it a full, full release patch notes uh, I didn't actually download the file, or, or I just read their sort of, we've done the best we could, and we didn't consider this a problem, and blah, blah, blah. So either way, that's available. Um, that, to me, should be the fix. So I haven't verified it, but if it is, it should be uh, a firmware patch. The only way to fix this problem is to flash your current firmware with an official version that removes this capacity altogether. So it doesn't actually have an executable that and goes and downloads a file. Right. There's probably other things that are going to do that. They can't get rid of everything, but just this particular job. Uh, hopefully they just got rid of it. I didn't see anything specifically from their patch notes when I was reading it that said we stopped
0: doing this. Well, now that I understand it's more complicated, as usual, than I expected it was. Um, mm-hmm. This just brought up questions I had, like like Logitech. Um, whenever you have a Logitech device, so I use Logitech keyboard keyboard. Uh, and mouse almost everywhere at work at home everywhere and whenever you use a logitech their unifying receiver or now they have like what they call their bolt receiver but it's just a bluetooth receiver is all it's supposed to be whenever you plug it into your system whether it's mac os or windows uh, you get a prompt immediately like the second you plug it in you get a prompt to install the logitech software and this is not just like a you know like a a, like a device manager issue or a driver manager issue, like it's a prompt to install their software. And it just it brings up questions like why is it possible that my my Bluetooth receiver, like is it something that is baked into Windows and Mac OS that allows you to like they are working with Logitech to make it easy to get the drivers to make your devices function as po- you know as good as possible? Or is it that those Bluetooth receivers contain the ability to execute a file?
1: I know, so So USB is a pretty complicated stack, right? It's, it's an extraordinarily complicated stack that is, too many people are involved and it's certified and there's there's so much involved with the USB environment altogether, right? So that, that the entire software stack, the way it's implemented in hardware, uh, I mean, down to the wiring, the plugs, the connectors, everything, USB is sort of a, an entity. And so there is a way this kind of works, right? In the case of Windows specifically, which is the only thing I can speak to here, in USB, generally, you'll have a handful of, of basic protocols that it will speak over USB. Some of the simplest ones you probably work with are serial, right? If you've ever seen, like, the COM ports. Keyboards, there's a standard for how the serial, like, the classic serial that uh, PS2 operates at. Um, and human interface device, I believe is what it's called, HID. And that is a protocol that's a standard over USB. And so I don't know how the selection process works, but when you plug one of these devices in, assuming it, the the OS will try to communicate, uh, specifically Windows, it will try to communicate with one of these devices uh, over one of those known protocols. And HID, for, so keyboard and mouse will likely be HID in that case. And I don't know the HID protocol well enough to know that assuming it picks HID or or one of those more serial type protocols, if it will allow, say, a file transfer and say, hey, I'm giving you this file, can you run this for me? Or I'm giving you this information, go get this driver for me. And um, It may also be a feature higher level in in the OS um, where they're just prepared for certain devices, right? It may be a higher level driver over um, HID or other protocols, those Logitech things, I can't think of many devices that I've played around with that have said, hey, we installed this program temporarily. Would you like to actually go get the real program or download this or that kind of stuff?
0: Which is what seems to happen. But now I'm going to have to do some, do some digging because now I want to know how it works. Um, I will say, while we're on the subject of Logitech, if any of you are Linux people and you uh, find that Logitech devices are great, except like the multifunction features don't work because the software is not available, um, there is an open source Uh, app that you can build, and it looks like it's probably available in a lot of the repos also. Um, It is called PWR-SOLAAR, Power, I'm guessing, Power Solar, Um, and it's a fairly well-featured Linux open-source version of the uh, Logitech desktop software, just so you guys know. It's hard to find. It's one of the things that annoyed me switching between Linux as my... Uh, like to tinker is my multifunction mouse it does not multi function the way it's supposed to. Did you want to do a software like some cool software that we find useful and like to play with? And you want to like finish up these episodes with uh, maybe a recommendation?
1: Yeah, well, uh, right now, you know, uh, in my development is really the only time I sort of experience software for the most part. I mean, short of uh, working with this recording software, which I probably won't talk about just yet, but um. Development-related stuff. So, I'm a dashboard guy. All right, I can be sometimes, and I, I like seeing data in front of me. Everything I work on, and um, there's an open-source tool. It's called Flame, and it's just a really simple dashboard. I like things that are simple, editable, things you can can control. It's really just links. Right? There's there's nothing special to it. It's not a full dashboard, I suppose. There's not not a ton of data involved in it. It's really simple, and it's just a little website, little dashboard, and it's just something I use. Uh, pretty regularly Um, I just kind of do it out of habit now I kind of know where all of my normal links and buttons and stuff are and I just go check that out so it's it's called Flame you can find it on GitHub Um, I don't have any other links for that wasn't exactly uh, prepared to drop that on you but that's just one that I use pretty regularly
0: mine and I would say one that I I have found immense value in is LinkedIn and you actually told me about LinkedIn about a year ago and I have used it ever since it's just a bookmark management tool. And I don't know if there's a way to run it. I just use Docker. It's a super clean interface. It's got a basically a, a very s- simple way of adding bookmarks. So you can add a bookmark. It's just a JavaScript function, I guess. You can tell me I'm wrong. Right. Um, that you can add as a bookmark. So any page that you're on when you're browsing, you just click that button and it uh, load that page into your... Uh, LinkedIn dashboard, and you can add um, hashtags. It's very, very searchable. It's really quick searching. Um, You can tag, you know, all of your uh, bookmarks by whatever you want. You can categorize them um, and uh, you can create accounts also. So basic account management, if you want to keep things separate or whatever too, Uh, It's really, really, really cool and very handy. And I'd say that's one of the things that I use uh, like every day and Love the heck out of it.
1: Yeah. LinkedIn is my new bookmark manager for the most part. Uh, anything that I want to archive or keep for a sort of longer period and make it searchable. The fast things I don't use it for. Um, the fast things yeah. I use Flame for, but for stuff that uh, I keep. Uh, it's a long-term. great
0: archival tool. Exactly. That's that's basically how I end up using it. I don't use it for my, I'm going to open these, you know, these, these pages seven times a day. That doesn't, I don't use it for that, uh, but it's awesome for archival stuff.
1: And there's one thing I want to say about sort of making recommendations. So these aren't, I don't want to make these recommendations. So what we're talking about as far as these programs go, these applications, is the stuff that we've used and play with. And it, when we find issues with them, we move away from them, right? So we'll use them for a bit. If we find issues with our either a workflow or maybe some type of security problem, we move on. And specifically with Flame and LinkedIn, I would suggest while they do have basic security features, Make sure you're you're not exposing it to the internet. Make sure you're you're using uh, SSL even within your own network, just because you can. It's not that difficult to do. Um, you know, make sure you have you control access to it just like you would any other uh, secured system. Mostly for privacy reasons, if nothing else, right? Just make sure nobody can get to your your personal stuff and your links and whatnot, right? So there's just no need. So. Uh, Just a recommendation for that. If you need to access it outside your network, I'd probably recommend a VPN at minimum. So just throwing things out there, really, I would recommend not doing any of that, right? So don't make anything accessible from the internet, the absolute bare minimum, Uh, even VPNs. So just use it for your workflow. That's just my disclaimer here. These aren't necessarily recommendations. It's just kind of stuff we found neat at the time. Um, But, you know, keep keep that kind of security stuff in mind when you're doing this, right? Most of the self-hosted type stuff, including my own software, I try my best, but the security stuff gets really complicated, right? I've, most of the code I've written over the past two years has been, the complex stuff at least, has been the security-related stuff. It gets really hard. Yeah.
0: yeah, build the application and then spend 10 times longer making it so it's actually secure.
1: Right, and it makes it so much more complicated and harder to work with, and you know, when you got all these passwords and you use a password manager, there's so many vectors of attack Um, that you can fall under and the bigger you make your stuff. If there's one takeaway that I can leave you with here is that the more stuff you add, the more applications you run, the harder it's going to be to manage, right? Just from somebody who has set up tons of, of software and I've, I don't like changing my stuff very often. Right. So, uh, once I find something that I sort of like, I stick with it until it becomes a problem. Um, and as long as it's part of my workflow, Right. So on the topic of recommendations, or lack thereof, I suppose, just a book that I've been reading right now. I can't make any major recommendations until I've completed it, at least. I just want to leave you with some some information, some new things that we maybe are interested in, because it's one of my favorite things to do when I listen to podcasts. And the book that I'm currently reading right now is The Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder, K-I-D-D-E-R. I've only made it through a couple chapters, about 40, 50 pages or so. I find it really enjoyable. It's it's a pretty old book. I think it was written in 81. So fairly old book, and I wouldn't necessarily say it applies to modern technology, but if you're sort of an engineer or somebody that's just very interested in making a difference in the technology world, whether it be through software, development, podcasting, bring education, to any sort of uh, young tech community. I, I think books in this type of category, I suppose, or at least that's my idea of them, uh, would be pretty helpful to sort of understand where we kind of came from, um, or at least how fun it was. Um, at, from what I understand of this book, it's just kind of a, an entertaining, at least how it starts off, right? It's just an entertaining experience through the the wildness that was the uh, 70s in computing and tech and how much money that was going on and you know, just some of the cool products and where we ended up.
0: Yeah, my book recommendation is not going to be a recommendation at all. I read a lot of Grant Cardone books many years ago, probably about s- seven or eight years ago, and uh, and I have not followed them in a long time, haven't read in a long time. But I am reading Seller Be Sold again, which I would say is a fantastic book to read, regardless of whether you're in sales. It's a really good book in understanding communication and exchanging with value whether it's just in the way that you communicate with other people around you um, or if you're selling either way doesn't matter but it's a it's a great book and i would uh, highly suggest reading it if you uh, if you value the capacity to communicate with other humans
1: big thank you to everybody that gave this podcast a chance listen here till the end if there's anything that we may have missed we'd love to hear some feedback from you maybe i got something wrong maybe you want me to clarify some things maybe you have some suggestions for future episodes by all means get in touch with us all of our contact information should be in the description of this podcast in your player if you want to get in touch with me the best way to do that is via email you can get that from my website vonnugent.com or hopefully in your podcast player, it is the webmaster uh, email address. So that would be vnpublic at proton.me. Love to hear your feedback. If you have some, again, I'd like to maybe make this a future uh, episode segment where I go over some of the things from a previous episode that were either unclear, that I was completely incorrect on, maybe there was some future information. Would love to make that part of future episodes. As far as the audio quality goes, you'll probably notice the intro and outro sections of this podcast are much different than the middle of this uh, episode, the, the content. That's because we did change our audio setups a lot, and I was getting prepared uh, to publish this with all of the other episodes so you'll probably be seeing this with a couple mostly because podcast platforms don't accept your podcast until you have a handful of episodes no problem we'll just stockpile them i think most of the information will be relevant enough uh based on the topics that we cover that this shouldn't be a big deal our episodes probably won't be super frequent um it takes a long time and i have a lot of other things going on including my free software So these aren't the highest priority, of course, but I I would like to grow it uh, if possible. So once again, thank you so much for listening and feel free to get in touch
0: with us.